As we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, lose his name right now, but you may have heard the story of the uh, famous Notre Dame coach, um, who I believe it was Notre Dame coach. What's that? Lombardi, Lombardi who went into the locker room at the beginning of a, a season after they had won a championship, and he begins by lifting a football up and holding it before them and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. He, he believed in understanding the basics of the game, and that was what he built his success on. Well, what I've just read, what we call the Lord's Prayer, might I say, church, this is a football. It does next and call us to what this text is calling us to. And what it is calling us to, in short, is kingdom praying. On our website, Gulf Coast Community Church website, uh, under the heading of our values, uh, by the way, some of this stuff gets hard to find, but it's there, I, pr I promise. Under the heading of our values, you will find uh, love the gospel, live the gospel, and advance the gospel. And you may hear those a lot around here. And under that that term or that phrase advance the gospel is this description as we are conformed to his meaning Christ's image we will live to advance the gospel through prayer by communicating the story to others and through sacrificial living and giving in order to see the gospel reach others so as we start the year we're going to be highlighting different ways including the three I've just mentioned that are from our website but others as well Today, we'll be focusing on kingdom praying. Um, we'll also explore the kingdom message, kingdom warfare, kingdom vision, and possibly a number of others. By kingdom praying, let me just give you a basic definition to what I mean when I say kingdom praying. I simply mean praying with the purposes, the values, and the mission of God's kingdom or rule in the earth. Praying with the purposes, the values, the mission of God's kingdom or rule in the earth. This is important for your personal prayer life and essential for corporate prayer, which is simply how we, as God's people, pray together. That's what's meant by corporate prayer, when we come together to pray. While we can certainly bring all our requests to God in prayer, I think... Many of us, at least if you've been around churches for much of your life, you've experienced that church prayer time or maybe community group prayer time that sounds a bit too much like a letter to Santa Claus. You familiar with that? You know, I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. And there's a fine line there because on the one hand, we are invited to bring all of our requests to God, right? All of our needs we should bring to God. So there's something about that that isn't bad, and yet, after a while, you begin to scratch your head a little and go, what, 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 what is it that's not quite right? Something seems to be a little off with this being our constant uh, and only, oftentimes, kind of form of prayer. So, how do those things come together? Do you ever read those descriptions in the book of Acts about how the believers lifted up their voices in one accord, as I think the old King James put it, in unison to God and wondered how... That could be accomplished. I mean, you know, try to get a bunch of people together today and tell them to pray. The idea that they would do something in one accord seems absurd, right? How, how would that ever be accomplished? 
Or read about Jesus' times of prayers. Have you ever read those in the Gospels and wondered what kinds of things that He prayed about? Would His prayer life, for instance, seem very much like our prayer life or our church prayer meetings? I mean, would there be any relationship between them? And if so, how? Is there a certain, a certain or a central theme tying the various and seemingly random prayers of Scripture together? I think that there is. Does the Lord's Prayer stand by itself, or is there any connection between that and, say, the Psalms, or Paul's prayers, or the, in, in the epistles, or other uh, authors' prayers in the Scripture? Is there a connecting theme to various kinds of things we should pray for when we gather? If so, how can we unite around such a theme while maintaining the variety of requests and prayers? Because we don't, we don't want to just have flat prayers. We always have to pray the same thing. We want people to be able to bring their requests. We want there to be variety in how we pray. And yet, there, is there something that should be uniting them together? And I would say, yes, I think there is. Learning to pray together is not merely, though, an academic endeavor. Any more than learning soccer is. One must put it into practice before any of this will matter. Much praying that is only slightly focused on God's kingdoms purposes is better than very kingdom-focused prayers that are never uttered. In other words, all the learning about prayer and the importance of praying together without the actual coming together to pray will make no difference in the world. There are no armchair quarterbacks in kingdom praying. Nobody cares what we think about it if we're not doing it. We, we have to actually engage in the practice. And I don't know about you, but the practice of prayer is difficult. The practice of prayer is not easy. And so, if you're anything like me, I need to be reminded, but I also need to be trained and equipped and, and shaped in how I pray and, and refreshed in my thinking about prayer. So today I want to explore key areas of Scripture which teach us to pray. Uh, the Psalms. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, Paul's Prayers, and Acts. And we're going to spend the vast majority of my time in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I'm going to close by summarizing these central things we learn about kingdom praying through what we talk about uh, through the rest of this message. So let's start with the Psalms. Now, to be clear... Um, Sorry. Um, I'm not saying that every single prayer in Scripture clearly demonstrates a focus on God's kingdom. So when I say kingdom praying, I'm not suggesting that every prayer in Scripture clearly is focused on God's kingdom. But I am saying that God's coming kingdom is the singular theme that unites the prayers of Scripture together. Some more explicitly, some less explicitly, maybe only implied but the context will reveal it. It's easy to see the kingdom focus of the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What about the book of Psalms, though, for instance, which is often referred to as the prayer book of the Bible or the prayer book of Scripture? Is it kingdom focused? Well, that's an interesting question, and I'm glad you asked, but 
The book of Psalms is broken into five books. You may see that heading in your Bible, depending on what version you have. You know, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And you'll have those headings. So the way the Psalms are structured, Psalms one and two are really an introduction into the whole book. And Psalms 146 to 150, a conclusion. 146 to 150 are a conclusion. Uh, Psalm 2 introduces the cosmic conflict which believers of all times face. The kings and rulers of the world standing in opposition to God's king, the Messiah, and his rule. Okay. Why do the nations rage? Why do the, the, you know, the, the kings of the earth and the rulers rise up and let us throw off their chains and their fetters? They're, they're in opposition to God and his anointed one or his Christ. That's Psalm 2. Books 1 through 3, the first three collections or books in the Psalms, are about David rising to power out of affliction. So what are they about? They're about the kingdom of God manifest in Israel in the Old Testament. But they end in Psalm 89 with the failure of the Davidic kingdom. They end where there's a question, God, what about your promise to David? I mean, it seems like it has completely and utterly failed. Then books 4 and 5, the last two books of the Psalms, are Psalms of exile and return. Return to what? Return to the establishment of the kingdom, this hope for God to reestablish His kingdom. And the last of those, Psalm 145, paints a picture of God's kingdom reigning over the world such that the lowly are lifted up, that needs are met, that God's kingdom is fully reigning in the world and life is good. And then, of course, you have those last five psalms that close the collection with God's people and all creation, praising God for His glorious reign. In other words, for His kingdom. So the kingdom is the unifying theme of the psalms. Hebrew scholar Carissa Quinn of the Bible Project describes psalms. And by the way, if you listen to podcasts, and even if you don't, you should pull up the Bible Project in your podcast and just listen. It's just, it's really, really good. So, highly recommend it to everyone. Um, really good stuff. Anyway, uh, Chris Quinn on the Bible Project describes Psalms saying, The story of the Psalms, listen, begins with a promise of a coming king who will bring victory to Israel. And it continues to tell the story of how God rescues David from his affliction and raises him up as king. But then Israel falls to enemy nations, and the people are left without a king and without a home. The Psalms then explore how Israel renews their trust in Yahweh as their king, and that that he will bring about his kingdom through a future messianic king from the line of David. So the kingdom is the unifying theme of the Psalms. And it should come as no surprise then, that when the Jesus' disciples asked him, a Jewish rabbi, who could no doubt cite the entire book of Psalms from memory, when, he asked the, uh, when they asked him to teach them how to pray, he responded by teaching them to pray with a focus on the coming kingdom. Your kingdom come. Now, I'll make the case here under our next heading, the Lord's Prayer, that that actually that entire prayer is focused on the kingdom, not just that one line. So keep that in mind. I'm not saying just saying your kingdom come makes it kingdom focused. Well, that certainly is, but that entire prayer is kingdom focused. And so let's look at 
uh, the Lord's Prayer. We are taught the Lord's Prayer in two different contexts in the Gospels, each of which are instructive. The first is in Matthew, and the second in Luke. In Luke 11, Jesus is praying. When he finished, the disciples asked him to teach them to pray. They, they wanted to learn to do what he was doing, and therefore the Lord's Prayer gives us some kind of insight into how Jesus himself prayed. In Matthew's Gospel, where we read earlier, uh, the Lord's Prayer falls right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the core of Jesus' teaching about how disciples, followers of Jesus, are to live their lives. In the center of that sermon is this prayer for God to help us live the kind of life described in the Sermon on the Mount itself. You get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, what you say, well, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Well, it's not just the Sermon on the Mount, but certainly if we look back in that Gospel as to what Jesus has commanded, that's the chunk, the biggest chunk of things that are, are specific things that Jesus is teaching us in regard to how to live our lives. Now, we could go into Matthew 10 and the, the missional text and what that says about mission and so forth. But the first and foundational piece is the Sermon on the Mount. And it should be no surprise that, that in the middle of that is not only prayer, because prayer is part of what it means to be a disciple, but prayer about how to live what is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's prayer that would actually help us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. So the first three requests of this prayer are explicitly kingdom-focused. Hallowed be your name. In the Old Testament scriptures, God's name being hallowed is the opposite of His name being blasphemed. Those are the two options. God's name is hallowed or God's name is blasphemed. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, it seems to be that it was blasphemed more often than it was hallowed because the way they lived their lives reflected poorly on the God whose name they bore. The difference between hallowing his name and blaspheming it had to do with how they lived their lives because God's name is hallowed or not hallowed or hallowed or blasphemed based on how professed believers now as we come to the New Testament live their lives. You see, anyone who professes Christ lives life in his name. Anyone who professes Christ lives life in his name. They may live in such a way that honors his name or defames his name, but they are doing so in his name. So one of our first prayer requests is always, Lord, hallowed be your name, which is to say, Lord, may my life be shaped in such a way by your will that your name would be honored by how I live. Amen? We might live self-centered lives in His name or selfless lives in His name. One reflects on His character, the second of those, and the other doesn't. It blasphemes His name because it is the opposite of His character. So this request, hallowed be thy name, is that we as Christ followers live in such a way that as Peter puts it in his first letter, one we just finished studying at the end of the year here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. Now, the unfortunate part of that verse is it doesn't say that you'll somehow get out of your suffering. <laughs> but on the day of His visitation, then they'll at least go, you know what? Yep, 
they were honoring God's name. That God be honored. They were right. I mean, they'll, they'll see that connection between your life and the character of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, this is not an escapist cry to be taken out of the world, but it's for the increase, a request for the increase of Christ's government and peace to start now and ultimately culminate in his coming. So, yes, it is a cry for the coming kingdom, but it's a cry for the coming kingdom to begin now in our lives and continue. His kingdom came. We live in the already, not yet, but it's for an increase of the already. <laughs> it's for an increase of how we live our lives in the rain, under His reign and in His kingdom. So, your kingdom come. It must not be confused with praying, my kingdom come. There are plenty of times we, we pray that our own kingdom would be built under the misconception that we are praying for God's kingdom to come. You know, Lord, make our church really large. Help us to be a mega church. Help us to be successful. Give me great, a great ministry. Make me rich so I can finance your kingdom. And on and on and on we might go. But that is not your kingdom come. That is my kingdom come. And we're not called to pray my kingdom come. And it is sometimes a fine line between the two. We need to be careful. When God's kingdom comes, those who are... Uh, falling or upheld. Those who are bowed low in humiliation are raised up. The eyes of all look to the Lord and receive their food in due season, according to the 145th Psalm. Praying for God's kingdom to come means that our prayers ought to reflect God's yearnings for the world around us. Yearnings expressed in His law, yearnings expressed in the prophets, yearnings expressed in Jesus' life and teaching. If we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we should have His kingdom interest informing our prayers. John Whitvliet, John Whitvliet, that's a mouthful, uh, of the Calvin Institute of Wor uh, Christian Worship offers this. He says, In the early centuries of the church, public worship services routinely featured intercessory prayers for public needs, issues, and leaders. These prayers were grounded in a vision of the church as the gathering of a royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2.9, responding to God's call to be a people bringing the needs of the world to God. In other words, kingdom praying is to pray as a kingdom of priests, a kingdom which mediates God's grace to the rest of the world. One congregation wanting to improve in this had four people who met every Saturday to review the week's headlines in their local newspaper to see which three would be used to create one-line prayers on the next Sunday morning, the next day in the case that they met on Saturday. Now, why would they do this? Because God's kingdom is concerned not just with what happens within these walls, but He is concerned with there being an overflow of His kingdom through these walls, into the community around us. Porous walls, if you will. The, the, the kingdom of God in our lives having an impact on the community around us. It was intended, the practice, to, to pull the church out of its own needs, to help them think about God's concerns for the world. So as an example, I, I went to the Tampa Bay Times website yesterday to look up the top headlines for this week. And here are three things that I, I noticed that stood out to me, which could produce prayer. 
Um, and I'll, I'll follow, I'll, I'll state them, and then I'll follow uh, with examples of prayers for each. Uh, the first one, the headline, Five Environmental Stories That Affected Tampa Bay in 2021 and What's Ahead in 2022. Now, much of this story was connected to the Piney Point wastewater disaster. You might be familiar with it. It dumped a year's worth of nitrogen into the bay over a two-week period. And, of course, that led to the worst red tide debacle we've had, I think, in history. Um, I mean, creating an apocalyptic scene of death in the sea life of biblical proportions. I don't know if you went down around the shorelines at all during that time, but it was unbelievable. Two articles were about shootings here in St. Petersburg, which seems to be a consistent theme in our city. Um, on New Year's Eve, I went to get some ribs at Mama D's on 34th Street South and asked the lady taking my order if she had plans for the evening. She said that she was gonna, her plans were to be under her bed sleeping, and then she made sure I heard her correctly. I said, under my bed, not under the covers. Says when the fireworks start, so do the guns shooting start, and you never know which one is which. And she was getting under her bed to protect her from any stray bullets that might be flying in the air. Now, honestly, I've not thought a whole lot about that myself, but it reminds me of what some people think about a lot more often than I do in our very own community. Of course, COVID concerns made a few of the headlines for the week. And so prayers for these might simply be something like these. Lord, you created. And by the way, let's lift these up in prayer to the Lord together. So if you would join me in, in echoing these prayers to the Lord. Lord, you created the seas and set things in order so that they would flourish uh, with life, that would teem with life. As your image bearers, we are to work to sustain life in all we do. But our activities have interrupted your order with disorder. Give us wisdom to know how to change these things, Lord, and heal the waters of this area and restore life. Teach us, Lord, what repentance would look like in this area. Then I might pray, Lord, just as violence covered the earth in Noah's time and you were grieved, so we know you are grieved by the excessive violence in our own city, violence impacting the poor disproportionately. O Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, bring healing to this land and show us, your people, how we can act in ways to restore peace in this community. And finally, I might pray, Lord, as COVID numbers rise, we ask that you protect the people of this city. Give us wisdom in how we are to respond and protect ourselves and one another. Heal those who are infected. Strengthen the doctors and nurses who are becoming weary of this. And give your people wisdom in how to live in these times. May we demonstrate peaceful ways of engaging this conversation rooted in humility. And may we not be contentious and belligerent. Amen. See, those are just ways that we might allow our prayers to be informed by God's desire to engage the world because His kingdom is, yes, He, he rules with His people like He did in Eden personally, but their job was to subdue the earth, to expand Eden, if you will, to the ends of the earth. And so our role as His image bearers is to bring, expand the influence of His kingdom in the community where we live. Royal priesthood kinds of prayers would be concerned for poverty 
and illness in our community. They would be concerned for the just governance of the community. They would be concerned with immorality, oppression, human trafficking, and the protection of the weakest members of our society, such as infants, the elderly, and the poor. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, allow me to state the obvious, but I think it needs to be stated. This is not a request that God's decreed plan for the universe be done. That will be done whether we pray or don't pray. Okay, so we don't need to, to, to focus on that. This is in the middle of a sermon about how disciples are to do God's will. So when it, we are called to pray, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven, it's talking about, Lord, help us do your will in earth as you've decreed from heaven. Help us to live according to how Jesus is instructing us right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Because that won't be done automatically. That requires answer to prayer. Amen? There are clearly echoes of this line in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane when he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus explains why such a prayer is necessary a couple of verses later when he says the spirit is surely willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, that was the kind of praying necessary for Jesus to be obedient to his Father all the way to the point of death. And it is the kind of praying that is necessary for us to be faithful followers of Jesus. When I read the Sermon on the Mount and how it calls me to live, my spirit is indeed willing. It gets rather excited, but frankly, my flesh is rather weak. I must pray your will be done by me, by us, in earth as it is in heaven. The next three requests are equally kingdom-focused as the first three requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Just as this prayer is to our Father, it is concerned with our needs, not just my needs. It doesn't say, Jesus didn't teach us to pray, give me today my daily bread. He taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. The, the language of the request echoes back to the manna economy of Israel in the wilderness. Remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they were complaining that they had no food, and so they get manna, which simply means, what's this? That's what it meant, what's this? And so they get manna. But, but there were some specific instructions about manna. You could only collect as much as you would eat that day. And you had to leave the rest for everyone else in the community to eat. But then, of course, people, being what people are, I mean, you've probably met a couple this way anyway in your life, but they wanted to gather more than their share, thinking, you know, I'll get a little extra here. Never know when a rainy day is going to come. And so they'd go gather extra, and they'd stick it away, in the, and, and the next day they'd return to it, and what would be maggots. Now, the only day they could collect extra is on the day before the Sabbath. They could collect twice as much as they needed, and the next day it wouldn't be maggots because they weren't to go out and collect on the Sabbath day. But that manna economy is what's being echoed here. Give us today our daily bread. In other words, Lord, give me what I need today and give us as a community what we need so that when we see that there's more than enough for me, then, then what's the extra for? As Paul brings out in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, 
The extra is for the needy so that there be no lack among us. That's God's kingdom way, that there would be no lack among us. Amen? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, forgive us our debts to you, our transgressions against you, even as we forgive, yes, the transgressions of others against us, that's certainly included, but not excluded, if we look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, are the debts that others owe us because we're to lend not expecting anything in return. So that is meant both literally and figuratively. In Luke's gospel, that's certainly included because Luke is, is casting the whole of the Sermon on the Plain as the instructions for the year of Jubilee, which was the year of people being released from their debts. But that's a whole other sermon. Get to that another day. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of debts is one of the highest values of God's kingdom. When we forgive with the same lavishness with which we've been forgiven, God's kingdom has come in our midst in glorious ways. Amen? It's one of the highest values of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. The world's kingdoms are exacting, not forgiving. God's kingdom requires the recipients of grace to extend grace to others. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that's not a prayer offered from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. We do not pray, bring it on, I am strong, I can take it, Lord. We pray, lead us not into temptation. The implication, lest we fall. And we pray that way, knowing that we are weak and we need His strength to overcome. Amen? So the Lord's Prayer. That's the football, church. That's the centerpiece, if you will. But I want to take just a couple of brief moments. One to look at Paul's prayers and the other to look at prayer in the book of Acts. And we can't look at all of Paul's prayer, so I'm going to pick one. But some have actually asked me, and not too um, long ago, actually, someone asked me this, but it, uh, several times have been asked, if the Lord's Prayer, or what I'm calling kingdom praying, is how we are to pray, then why didn't Paul pray that way? In other words, why do we see Paul praying differently than the Lord's Prayer? It's a fair question. And I'm, I can't explore all his prayers, but I'm going to use this one in Colossians 1, because I think you're going to see that actually Paul's prayers demonstrate a clear connection to the Lord's Prayer. And when we see the connection, I think we begin more clearly to understand how we are to use the Lord's Prayer, not just repeating it in rote ways, but by letting it inform the, the motivations, the kinds of things that we should be praying for. And so I've got a slide. This is Paul's kingdom praying. And you've got on the left side uh, uh, some verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And you've got some colors. I'll explain those, but they connect to what we have in Matthew 6, our original text, the Lord's Prayer. And so if you look at that, as I walk through this, what you'll see is, is that Paul, in fact, is praying 
a very kingdom-focused prayer. And so we read in Colossians 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be, note these words, filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then, of course, on the right side of that slide, you'll see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the, the red text on the right. In other words, they're both praying for God's will, one for the church to be filled with it, with the implication that they would then do it. So your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk, verse 10 of Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Hallowed be your name, worthy of the Lord, a manner that, that, that actually matches up to the Lord's name and doesn't blaspheme it, but honors it, if you will. Fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, on the one hand, lead us not into temptation, which is an expression of weakness. On the other, give us strength with power according to your might. Implication, because we don't have it. We are weak. For all endurance and patience with joy. They likely found themselves in the middle of trial already. Giving thanks to the Father, our Father in heaven, who has qualified you to share in the... Now, these next three phrases that I've got in orange... Obviously, the third of which is explicitly kingdom-focused, but they're all using language that is kingdom of God related. The, uh, to sh who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in, uh, in light. That inheritance was in the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Now it's a spiritual inheritance. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You could put the words domain of the kingdom of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is elsewhere called the kingdom of light. So... All three of those phrases are drawn together under that theme of the kingdom. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then, of course, note, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, the forgiveness of sins. You see the values of the kingdom of the Lord's Prayer, those values that are expressed there. So many of them are replicated here in Paul's prayer. Now, I confess, I took the easiest one. Why? Well, because it's my sermon, and I didn't want to make my job any harder than it had to be, okay? So, yeah, I took the easiest one. But, if you can see it as explicit as it is here, I trust that you'll be able to begin to explain. That's what I want you to do. Look at Paul's prayers and try to think about how the various parts of it relate to the motivations in the Lord's Prayer. And that will help inform us how these things actually can work out in our actual prayer life. Amen? And let's look at prayer in the book of Acts. It isn't difficult to see that the kingdom of God was the central motivation of prayer in the book of Acts. It helps to know, I think, that Acts, the book, is about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, but not by a sword or bloodshed, but rather by spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. So the whole book, if you will, is about your kingdom come. You know, it's, it begins with the disciples' question, well, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says what? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates, but, and this is the answer to their question of how, not when, 
but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So as they become his witnesses, empowered by the Spirit, that's what would happen. And so that's what we see going on throughout the book of Acts. The well-known prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and following, after the apostles released from jail, is actually rooted in Psalm 2. You remember that psalm I referenced earlier that's about the kings of the earth in opposition to God's king? You see, in the book of Acts, the way they looked at it, this was war. Now, we're going to talk about that in kingdom warfare, another message. It's important not to confuse that with actual war, which has been done plenty of times. But we'll get to that. This was war for them, waged with the gospel of the kingdom of God. In short, they prayed, your kingdom come, in this prayer that we're going to look at, and may your... Uh, may we do your will by boldly speaking about Christ's coming kingdom. So let's look at these verses. Um, in Acts 4, 24, starting there, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? So this is Psalm 2. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth, there's kingdom language, your kingdom come, that's why it's in orange, set themselves and the rulers, more kingdom language, were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Christ, His coming King. So the King of the coming kingdom, that's what Christ means, His anointed, His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there it is again, Christ, the anointed, uh, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, Pause there for a second. Um, you see the kingdom language here in this first part, but as we go down to verse 28 and begin reading there, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, with, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So again, Lord, grant that, uh, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words, may your will be done. May we do what you've asked us to do in the face of their threats. Now, we could add to that, give us all strength and endurance that we might endure what's facing us, as was prayed in Colossians. There's so many things that intertwine, and I'm only doing what I think are the simplest of them. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That, that's amen. So the deli bread they needed. Amen. And often we need. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So verse 31 tells us that their prayer was answered. That they were able to do God's will in earth as it was in heaven to speak the word of God boldly in this case. In the face of their persecutors. So in closing, I just want to summarize some things and bring them together. What does it mean to be kingdom-focused in our prayer? It is in heaven. Everything in the Lord's Prayer, not just the, the, the title line or that line, your kingdom come, is kingdom-focused. Give us this day our daily bread is kingdom-focused. Deliver us from evil is kingdom-focused. Forgive us even as we forgive those who sin against us is kingdom-focused. Kingdom-focused prayer, and this is the second thing. So first, it's prayer that God's rule, uh, for God's rule to be present in earth as it is in heaven. Secondly, it's kingdom-focused prayer is always ab about us, even when it is about an individual. In, in other words, 
Maybe you have a request. Maybe your aunt has a request. Maybe your brother has a request. But it is always about us. Even those psalms, for instance, which are clearly prayed from the perspective of the individual, were given to Israel to be prayed as a congregation for worship and prayer. But they began to see that the I was them, not just an individual. Because they were one. They, sh- they shared each other's burdens. They were... We still pray, for instance, for those who are sick. But not only do we ask that they may be healed, but how God would want us to be His image bearers to them. How do we do your will toward the one that is sick? So we pray, yes, Lord, heal them. And Lord, how would you have me care for them, show your love, to represent you, to be your image bearer to them? So it doesn't mean we don't pray for all these various things. It just gives a little shade of meaning, if you will, to how we pray these various things. It orients them towards something that is what we are about as a people. Amen? People of God. Kingdom-focused prayer, thirdly, is not about getting what I want, but about orienting my life around doing what God wants. Put another way, kingdom-focused prayer is prayer that we would represent God as His image bearers faithfully. It's about restoration to how God made things to be, expanding Eden to the ends of the earth. Fourthly, kingdom-focused prayer is prayer as a community of priests, a, a priesthood mediating uh, God's just rule in the world. In other words, it's the royal priesthood praying on behalf of the world in which we've been placed, particularly the community in which we live. And I might just add this last one because I think it's a good way to expand our thinking about kingdom-focused praying. Kingdom-focused prayer is prayer for anything from Scripture that could be used to finish this sentence. When God's kingdom comes, fill in the blank. When God's kingdom comes, this will be no more. That will be, well, these are things we are invited to pray about in your kingdom come. Amen? When we begin to pray with a kingdom focus, there will be unity in our prayers such that one might say they lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. In Acts 2, when it says they were devoted to the prayers, there should be no doubt that these were kingdom-focused prayers in all their variety, and there is much variety. If we are going to be the church that God has called us to be in 2022, or any other year for that matter, we must be a praying church, and we must be praying kingdom prayers. And if we do, we will be the church God has called us to be, for all of our doing can only grow out of such prayers. Well, as we close, we're going to gather around the Lord's table, so to speak, as as we have an opportunity to come to the kingdom table, the kingdom meal that our king has provided by shedding his own blood. This is that meal that we all partake of together, wherein we recognize that we become one, that we share each other's burdens, that we are one with him and therefore one with each other. Father, we come before you at this table, this table provided by your Son, our King. A table wherein we are reminded that our sins are forgiven. And we pray, forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, this table that reminds us that you are the true giver of our daily bread. 
and that what we have is truly and need most is truly Christ, the one who satisfies.